Michael Reagan on his father's legacy. Lisa Marie Presley and Wink Martindale remember Elvis. And hashtag walkaway founder Brandon Strzok. That's Trey Corley in the Music City Connection. And I'm your announcer, Keith Milbury. And now, here's Mike Huckabee. Whoa. What a great audience we've got out here tonight. We're gonna to have so much fun, and we're delighted that you have joined us. Thank you for being here. Now, I'm gonna tell you a little story. A reporter in Arkansas covered me from my earliest days as first an unsuccessful candidate, then through multiple winning campaigns, during the time I held the offices of lieutenant governor and governor, and then on to national presidential campaigns. Now, this guy wrote hundreds, if not thousands of stories about me. But to this day, I honestly don't know if he liked me or not. I haven't the slightest idea if he voted for me or against me. Quite frankly, some of his articles made me seem like a good guy. Some made me cringe. But I cringed because the story was accurate. Oh, I may not have liked it, but I couldn't say it was unfair. I didn't like it because it was fair, and I just didn't come across very well. That reporter was a genuinely professional journalist. Now, when I read my own quotes in a story and it makes me mad at the reporter, folks, I wasn't quoted accurately or fairly. I mean, they're my words. But if I'm mad at myself because they're my own words, I gotta own them. Members of the media have been in a snit because President Trump calls them fake news and he said that they're the enemy of the people. Now, he has clarified that he doesn't think all the media are enemies of the people. His comments aren't an attack on the First Amendment. Rather, it's a pushback against the biased, elitist, advocacy-based reporting that stands in the way of real journalism. We need a free press. And we need one that's not afraid of anyone or anything, and a press that will speak truth to power. By the way, a responsible press is the watchdog of our Constitution and our great republic. But today, we've got much less a watchdog and more an attack dog toward conservatives or Christians. And then we've got a lapdog for liberals and those who hold people of faith in utter contempt. So, what does it even mean when we use the term free press? Here's what it means. It means that reporters are free to ask anything they want. And they're also free to write or say anything they want. That freedom has in no way been impeded by the president. But some reporters seem to think that they ought to be able to rudely demand not just an answer, but a very specific answer that fills the gaping holes in their shoddy stories. I learned some things dealing with the media before becoming part of it. First, I used to say to myself every day, the press is not my friend. Because that's true. Folks, no one ever got a journalism award for writing a story that says, Governor Huckabee is a great guy and is doing great things. You get a copyrighted byline and front page story for saying, this guy's a goon and we got the goods on him. Now the Constitution protects the press to write what they wish and the government cannot shut them down. But take note, no elected, appointed, or employed government official is required by law to help load a gun pointed at his or her own head. Uh, journalists are free and they're entitled to ask, but they are not entitled to an answer and especially not entitled to the answer that they specifically want. Yes, we need a free press, but they are only as viable as they are honest. And when they are more committed to their own political biases than to objectively reporting the raw facts, they're no longer journalists. They're just political hacks. And if they pretend they're wearing a striped shirt and refereeing the game, but in fact, they put on a team jersey and start playing for one of the teams, they are not only enemies of the people, they are enemies to the very constitution that they hide behind to attack and destroy the people they don't like or agree with. And that's my view.
Well, you would think that my next guest might be the perfect demographic for the Democrats. He's young, single, gay. He lives in New York City. He's a hairstylist, an aspiring actor, and he's always been liberal. But then one day he decided he could no longer stay quiet about the left's rising violence, incivility, and intolerance of differing views. So he made a Facebook video explaining why he was walking away. His statement of conscience went viral. It exploded into a nationwide walk-away movement. Well, here to tell us his amazing story, would you please welcome Brandon Strzok. Brandon, good to have you here. Thank you. Good to Thank be here. You. Uh, Thank you. You had sort of an epiphany a little over a year ago. Yes. Tell me what happened in Brandon's mind and heart, and you said, I don't want to be a liberal anymore. Um, what really happened was after the election of Donald Trump, uh, I was devastated. Uh, you know, I was one of those people who was going on social media crying, ranting. I was going to ask if you cried. Oh, I cried. I was really, really upset, and I was devastated. Now, see, I grew up in a tiny little town in Nebraska, so a lot of the people on my social media are people that I knew would be Trump supporters. And I love the segment that you just did to open the show because it's really the media that kind of twisted that narrative about Trump and fooled so many of us on the left into believing that you know the biggest monster on the face of the earth had just taken the office of president. So I was going on social media and asking, you know, why did you guys do this? Why did you vote for this horrible man? Like, how could you do this? And one of the things that I went on there and I was really upset about is I said, you know, you, just like the rest of us, watched as he mocked a person's disability before a cheering crowd. Like, how could you vote for this man? And this woman, uh, who was literally my babysitter when I was a baby, uh, a staunch Christian conservative, she and I had many battles over the years on social media, she reached out to me privately and said, like, look, don't, don't bite my head off, but I'm just asking, have you seen this? And it was a, a YouTube video, it was a clip, that was titled Debunking That Trump Mocked the Disabled Reporter. And what this really was, was a compilation of footage showing Donald Trump doing that exact same voice and that exact same gesture numerous times over the years, any time that he was having fun with somebody who had been caught in a lie or somebody who had done something shady or dishonest. Well, it became very clear to me that he, he wasn't mocking that man's disability at all. He was just making fun of the fact that this guy had been caught in a lie. But the light went on in my head and I thought, suddenly I realized, well, why would the media say he did that if he didn't do it? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, it's so obvious. Are you obvious. saying you found that the media is a little dishonest sometimes <laughs> with conservatives? No, I'm not I'm saying shocked. that. I'm not shocked. saying that. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that I found that they're a lot <laughs> oh, dishonest. Okay. Yeah. yeah. No, um, I mean, really, that's what happened. And then once I discovered this, I thought, uh, well, what else were they, you know, not telling me the truth about? So I sort of went on this journey of research, and it turns out quite a bit. They were dishonest about quite a bit. And that's what started really this process of me discovering all, you know, that the, the media had been very dishonest, the, the, the left-wing politicians had been very dishonest. And, you know, then the other thing that they do too, I think, to minorities in America, whether you're black, whether you're gay, whether you're Hispanic, they love to tell us the news through the filter of fear and intimidation. They love to constantly tell us we're in danger. They love to constantly tell us that the people on the right hate us and that they don't want us and that we're not safe. And so once I just started to discover how dishonest they were in conjunction with the fact of how they were using that to manipulate us and our fear and our behavior, I said, I'm done. I'm done with these people. You created something that went viral. I mean, and, and it's astonishing how rapidly it's grown. It's called the walk-away movement. I mean, did you think it was gonna be a movement? It has become exactly what I dreamed it would become, but I didn't know for sure. I mean, I filmed my video, I put it out there. For anyone who hasn't seen it, it's really, I call it the definitive manifesto of everything that's wrong with liberalism and the Democratic Party. It's six... <laughs> and, and it's very powerful, I'm gonna tell you. If, if, if people have not seen it, uh, and we're gonna give the web address, because I want everybody to go to the website and see it, one of the questions, when this went out, I mean, mm -hmm. you had a lot of friends probably that were strong liberal friends. Yeah. Were they angry at you? What happened was um, people started like slandering me kind of on social mm -hmm. media because this is what I find happens so often. And we see it not just with me, yeah. we see it all the time. It's when they can't accept something, rather than having a conversation with it, I mean, to this day, I have not had one single friend reach out to me and say, help me understand why you changed. Not uh, one. Not one. Not one. You know, Brandon, one of the things that I have appreciated is your candor, your honesty. You put on the Facebook page 
that you sponsor with uh, the walkaway campaign. Thousands now of testimonies of people who have done what you've done. They've walked away. And yes. there's a hashtag, the hashtag walk away. Right. Do some of those stories really surprise you where people come out and they openly declare, I once was with the Democrats and the liberals, but I've walked away. And they tell, it's not just that they did it, but they tell why they did it very specifically. Right. Well, there's a term that people use when they have an experience like mine. They call it being red-pilled, that you took a red pill. Ah. Yeah. And so the thing is, for, it might be hard for people to understand, but once you have an experience like this, once you become red-pilled, you kind of see everything in focus suddenly. So when I watch other people's stories, even if it's something that I personally haven't experienced at all, and they're living a completely different kind of life than I'm living, I, I'm still able to get it. Because the experience is, the common thread of the experience is very similar. So I watch these videos and it could be a black woman who lives in Alaska, but as she's telling her experience, I'm like, I totally get it, honey. Mm. I totally get it. Let me just say, not just thanks to Brandon Strzok for joining me, taking a stand for civility, but I hope you will contact him and learn more about what he's doing. It's at walkawaycampaign.com. Yes. Please write that down, walkawaycampaign.com. Watch that video, six minutes of your life that you will be glad you spent. Also, search Facebook for hashtag walkawaycampaign. You can follow him on social media at U.S. Minority. And uh, Brandon, what a delight to So great here. to meet you. It is a pleasure. So Thank you. you. Thank you. All right. Hey, Keith, I want you to tell the audience why they shouldn't walk away from us. Oh, that would be a mistake. Coming up, Lisa Marie Presley remembers her father. Then later, Michael Reagan joins us. Plus, Wink and Sandy Martindale are all on Huckabee. This week, RCA and Legacy Recordings release a new Elvis album titled Where No One Stands Alone. The recording features 14 original gospel songs by the king of rock and roll. My next guests are here to tell us more about this incredible new music. Would you please make welcome Elvis's daughter, Lisa Marie Presley, and producer Joel Weinshanker. Lisa and Joel, I'm so honored to have you here. I could spend hours, but unfortunately, we don't have that much time, so let's get right to it. How did this project come together? Joel, why don't you give me a, a little background on how it started? Sure. You know, everything that we do here and, you know, everything that I do, you know, with, you know, Lisa's my business partner, is really about what Elvis would want. Uh, and Elvis, above all, loved the gospel. You know, if you think about it, you know, Elvis has sold over a billion records uh, and he's the number one gospel recording artist of all time. Uh, and if you think about how many people he has, you know, shared the gospel with and shown the gospel, it's what grounded him. This is something that I think Elvis was able to give to his daughter uh, and something that's very, very special. Lisa, 41 years after your father's untimely death, you inherit this extraordinary gift of, of his generosity, his music. Uh, d does it surprise you that he is as popular today as he was in the 1970s? I, would, I, I, could, I don't know about the word surprise, but I, I'm never, it never ceases to amaze me every year, um, the loyalty and the love that he continues to get. It, it, it's always just very, I'm very grateful for something like that. Your own musical style is soulful. It has depth. People who hear you sing can hear your father's voice in you, and yet you have your own unique stamp. Were you ever afraid as, as, as you grew up that if you sang, you would be so compared to your dad that that was intimidating to you? You know, it was intimidating. And I guess I somewhere, I, I, you know, I couldn't for myself not follow what was in my heart and in my soul, which would be a singer-songwriter. It's what, you know, I considered the writing just as much as the singing. I think that both come hand in hand. and. Um, you know, I had to follow where, where my heart is, you know. Tell us about the song Where No One Stands Alone. This is the one on the track that you do uh, with your dad. And I, I find that just remarkable. And, and it had to have been a very powerful personal experience to, to do that recording. Actually, this, this song came about. Um, it was Joel here, my business partner, who had this vision and idea about it. And, I, you know, I wasn't familiar with this song. 
uh, very much. And so I first heard it. Then I, I got figured out my harmony very quickly because I just did it in a few takes. And then when I went into the, to the sound booth, I, I was, as I was singing, I was reading the lyrics and just like, you know, I felt overwhelmed by, wow, you know, this, is, this, this song is talking to me very loudly right now. It, it kind of was like, it felt like a hand was coming down and grabbing me and lifting me up for just a second. You know, and like it, 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 it really had that kind of an impact on me. And then I got very emotional. And she broke down a little bit. And when she broke down, everyone in the control room broke down as well. It was, we were all crying. Uh, the take that she did after was so amazing and it was so Presley. It's, you know, she was singing with her dad. They were giving and taking and they were going, uh, you know, above and, and below. And you couldn't tell where one started and the other ended. It was really one of, the, one of the most incredible experiences I've ever had in the studio. Well, I think the people who get this album are going to absolutely love it. And you have such an amazing uh, group of people with it. Darlene Love, uh, members from the Imperials and others, who, who I think are going to add so much to it. I, I cannot wait for people to get their hands on the, uh, the brand new album where no one stands alone. And I want to thank both of you for being here. Uh, what a delight and an honor to have you with us tonight. Thank you Thank so you much. much Thank you. Thank you. And by the way, you can get your copy of Elvis's Where No One Stands Alone at your favorite online music retailer or visit graceland.com. All right, Keith, I'm all shook up. I really am. And I'm just thinking that 41 years after his untimely death, the music and influence of Elvis continues. Oh, by the way, there's something else that continues, and that's this show. So, Keith, tell us what's coming up next. Well, coming up, Huck's hero, Chloe Howard, and her anti-bullying campaign. And conservative host, Michael Reagan. Stay tuned. And welcome back as Trey Corley and the Music City Connection rock the house. Speaking of Trey Corley, you got a pretty good looking hat on your head tonight. Who's that from? This hat is from the Corporate Chaplains of America. <laughs> and they are, they are nation's leading provider of full-time chaplain services for companies and their employees. They provide a counseling and encouragement, prayer and hope of the gospel in the workplace across the country. So I just want to say thanks to all of the chaplains that are out there that are making a difference. Thank you very much. Indeed. And our thanks to Matt Yates for the hat from this fine organization. If you want to know more about Corporate Chaplains of America, just ask Trey Corley. He knows all about it. Or if you'd like to invite a chaplain to your workplace or no more, don't ask Trey. Visit their website at chaplain.org. Now, there is a national epidemic where the strong prey on the weak. And the hits that kids take to their self-esteem makes freedom seem like a pipe dream to many of them. Our Huck's hero tonight knows firsthand the brutality of bullies. But she also knows who she is, and she knows what it takes for someone to realize just how strong they really are. I want you to meet tonight's Huck's Hero. Chloe Howard was born with her foot upside down and backwards. Doctors said she would never walk. By the age of 14, she had endured five major operations and years of physical therapy. But growing up, she always thought her foot was her superpower. But every superpower has a villain trying to destroy it. Freshman year of high school came, and her superpower attracted quite a bit of attention. Then one day, in the lunchroom, she was assaulted. Against her will, her foot was shown to her peers. Flooding her heart were the shame and lies, saying that what made her special actually made her an outcast. But instead of allowing those words to destroy her hope, she took a stand and decided that her foot was not a detriment, but rather, it's what made her beautiful. This is only one of the 160,000 stories of kids who deal with bullies on a daily basis. 
Through Chloe's story, maybe one day those kids will see their uniqueness as a gift and in turn help others see the value in themselves. She's an author and public speaker who fights bullying, not with her hands, but with her heart. Please make welcome tonight's Huck's hero, Chloe Howard. Chloe, so nice Thank having you, so you here. Thank you for having me. You were bullied and people attempted to humiliate you. How did you handle that in a way that just gave you a sense of you're okay? It was really challenging. I had always thought growing up that I was special and beautiful just the way I was. Because of my parents' faith, I was taught that my foot was beautiful and special. And then when I was assaulted, those truths were completely derailed. And I, for the first time, felt ashamed of my foot. I went to therapy and my parents were so incredibly supportive. And I did happen to meet Bono, the lead singer of the band U2, who spoke truth into my life and inspired me to start telling my story. What did he say to you? He told me, Chloe, that what happened to you is an injustice. And every time you speak out about injustice, you speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. You've now done a book called Stand Beautiful and a children's version of yes. it called Stand Beautiful. Uh -huh. Tell me about the reaction that you have when you talk to audiences, particularly young people, about fighting back against bullying. Yeah, I travel all around the world speaking at schools and churches and events about this idea of stand beautiful, of loving ourselves just the way we are, seeing ourselves as the perfectly imperfect human beings that we are, and recognizing that differences aren't just okay but should be celebrated. And I've noticed that when I'm vulnerable with people, when I share my story, they are vulnerable back and they want to share their story as well. So I have so many fun stories about people coming and sharing those stories with me. It's so special. My guess is that when you finish speaking, there are a lot of kids who come up to you with tears in their eyes because you gave them something that they didn't have before you spoke and that was hope. What I've learned is that only we have the power to determine what our labels are. That whether you're a victim to bullying or whether you are a bully yourself, that you're not stuck in that label. That our label is beautiful. You don't have to be a victim and you don't have to be the bully. We as people are resilient and we can rewrite our stories. You deserve to be our hero tonight and you are a beautiful young lady inside and out. And I thank God that he has you out there speaking truth. Thank you. <laughs> Thank Chloe. you so much. What a blessing to have you here. <laughs> if you face bullying in your life and you want to learn more about Chloe's story or maybe have her come speak in your hometown, go to standbeautiful.me. That's standbeautiful.me. And also buy her book, Stand Beautiful, through her website or major book retailers anywhere, online or bookstores. She's got a version for young adults as well as a picture book for the kids. Now, I said before, we keep Keith over there in his little spot just so he can tell us about the amazing people that we have coming up next, and we're going to turn to him yet once again. All right, next we've got the news you may have missed. Political commentator Michael Reagan and broadcasting legend Wink Martindale and his wife Sandy. It's all here on Huckabee. Through the work of Samaritan's Purse, you can make someone else's life better. And in many cases, you can literally save a life. I hope you'll open your heart and that you'll call or visit their website today. And just remember what you give to make those precious lives better will certainly come back to you as blessings in your own life. Now, we have been scanning the news so that we could bring you those important and unique stories that can sometimes be a little overlooked. And that's why we call this segment on our show in case you missed it. All right, from our Freedom of My Speech But Not Yours file, evangelist Greg Laurie had the audacity to put up this vicious and salacious billboard in Southern California. Oh, I know what you're thinking. How dare he put a foreign flag behind him to advertise an event in Anaheim? But that's not it. It's not even the Sinatra-like swagger with the mic in hand. No, it's this that caused an outrage in Southern California. How dare someone hold a Bible in their hand on a billboard? Well, Reverend Laurie had contracted with the Irvine Company to post large billboards promoting the crusade at Fashion Island Mall. However, the Irvine Company said the billboard provoked multiple complaints 
and a serious threat. So they requested the design be changed. Reverend Laurie provided the new ad without himself and without the Bible. But that wasn't enough. They told him to scrap it and they refunded his money. Now, perhaps if Reverend Laurie had been holding up this, or even this, or this, then I might could understand the decision. But how could a plain book held in hand be considered vulgar or offensive? Yes, there is something rotten in Orange County. Friends, I know we've poked fun at the ludicrous nature of this decision, but it is in truth chilling. And we hope that you will let the Irvine Company and Fashion Island Mall and Merchants know that this billboard was not offensive, but their decision was. Well, our second story tonight. When African-American religious leaders met with President Trump recently, the liberal left did not know what to do. So they did what they always do. They mocked, demeaned, and decried the event through the press and social media. Now, my question would be, why ridicule an attempt to make issues and needs known to the president and offer to help gain some solutions? Consider what Reverend John Gray from Relentless Church stated in his opening prayer. Here it was, and I quote, God, we thank you for an opportunity to speak about the hearts of those who sometimes cannot fight for themselves. Thank you for this moment to be able to share our hearts with the president and his administration, end quote. Now the reverend referenced the great Dr. Martin Luther King when he quoted, we cannot influence a table that we're not seated at. And so we pray that this conversation will be fruitful and productive and honoring of the best traditions of this nation. Now, do you find the words of those prayers or having a discussion among influential leaders and the president somehow wrong or worth criticizing? Well, I certainly don't. My hope is that we will see more meetings like this between divergent groups along with decisions that will make breakthroughs in America for its citizens. Most of all, I hope heaven hears many more prayers from all of us about serving those in need and calling upon our president to take the lead. And finally tonight, from our utterly amazing file, did you catch that utterly amazing file? There is a group of cattle near Sanford, Florida who moonlight as police. I'm not making this up. You see, Sanford police were in pursuit of a stolen car when it crashed. The driver, Jennifer Ann Kaufman, took off into a nearby pasture, hoping to escape and enjoy the dairy air. It, it doesn't get worse. It has to get better from there. But little did she know that bovine justice awaited her in the night. The Seminole County Sheriff's helicopter assisting the police saw 20 cows chasing Kaufman back and forth across the field. The cattle eventually wore the carjacker down, so she crawled through a fence and surrendered to the Sanford police. <laughs> in, the, in the social media post, the sheriff's department thanked the cow cops, saying a herd of cattle provided law enforcement a big assist, repeatedly following and helping corral one who strayed onto their turf. And when asked about the successful apprehension, one of the cows allegedly said, please remind Jennifer that crime doesn't pay, but cream always does. I think we've milked this segment enough. It's time to move on, and so we shall. And once again, we have saved you much time in agony because we read the news so you don't have to. There you go. Well, as the son of President Ronald Reagan, my next guest has carried on his father's legacy defending patriotism, conservatism, and common sense. He's done it through his popular radio show and best-selling books. Today, he is a much sought-after speaker and commentator on current events, and he's the president of the Reagan Legacy Foundation. Please welcome Michael Reagan to our show. Michael, welcome. Good to be with you, Governor. Michael, something that is important to you that you've been a champion of is an honest appraisal of American history. Do you think we're just not even understanding who we are as Americans anymore? We don't understand ourselves because we're not taught. There's no education. Um, I ran into a young man in Germany a few years ago, asked him what he knew about the Berlin Wall. He said, well, the Americans kept it up, or put it up to keep the communists out of their sector. I was amazed by that, so what I did was put it in a Ronald Reagan room at the Checkpoint Charlie Museum a year later. 
a, a few years ago, I was playing golf with a young man, told him I was headed to, to, I guess, to Normandy to raise the flag at the American Cemetery on Sunday morning. Said to me, why is there an American Cemetery at Normandy? Had no reason to know, he didn't know why. I said to him, I said, did you think D-Day was the day your report card came home? <laughs> Which is kind of frightening, you know, and I, I think we're, we're laughing here in the studio because it's funny, but yet what's not funny is that there's a whole generation of Americans who don't understand what they have inherited, what has been handed to them on a silver platter, their liberty, their freedom, the incredible opportunities oh. this country affords. How do we fix that, Michael? Governor, listen, I wrote about it in one of my books, Lessons My Father Taught Me. I learned about America sitting in a station wagon with my father as a young boy driving out to the ranch, hearing him regale me with stories about America, singing the songs of every military organization on the planet. And so what I do through the Reagan Legacy Foundation is really uplift that, that whole image of my father. With, we, have, uh, we have a foundation to give scholarships to young men who serve on the USS Ronald Reagan. We have a program now at Normandy, France, Walkway to Victory. People can go online to walkwaytovictory.com and order a brick with a name of a loved one who served in the Second World War in the European theater. And we are bricking in there at St. Mary Glees, Normandy, France. First town freed by America on D-Day. We're putting bricks in with the names of those who saved the world. And, and we're doing that. And I just hope people really remember those who gave their lives so that we're not speaking German. I'm going to tell you something. One of the most moving experiences my wife and I ever had was going to Normandy, raising that flag that you mm -hmm. talked about, and, and just realizing what those young men did was a, an act of courage and valor, the likes of which we may never see in human history. And I pray we never have to see that kind of valor again. You've been a, a very, what I would call, objective and fair critic of President Trump. What advice, if, if you could give to President Trump, would you share with him? I would tell the President of the United States to start tweeting presidentially. It's great to be the President of the United States, but sometimes you have to act like the President of the United States and be presidential. And if he became more presidential, more people would be paying attention to what's going on in the labor market where we have the greatest workforce on the planet, we have the greatest income, we have the greatest country. And they would pay attention to that instead of the tweets that he puts out that sometimes demean people that he doesn't need to be doing. Act presidential, Mr. President. Earlier in the show, and our audience uh, certainly, I think, agrees with that. Um, earlier in the show, I talked about journalists. It, it's a profession I don't see happening very much anymore. I see advocates. Journalists don't make themselves part of the story. Today, people who think they're journalists are very much a part of the story. Do you think it's different now, more confrontational than it was in the era of your father? Today, we're angrier. And I, I think that's what people are, are dealing with, the fact that I can't turn on the news anymore. I have to turn on opinion. I don't want opinion, I want the news. Give me the news, I'll form my opinion, if you will. And, and that's what I'm looking for, and I think that's what a lot of people are looking for today. Was it angry back in the years of Ronald Reagan? Did the media not like Ronald Reagan? Yes, but you know, he got through it with a wink and a nod. He didn't get through it by calling out the press. He called them out with humor. Well, he, he was a master at the use of humor. And uh, he was a master at a lot of other things. And I think uh, one thing that I've seen, President Trump is the first president since your father that believed that it was a good thing for America not only to be strong, but to exert its strength to the other nations of the world. Is that one area that you feel like uh, that President Trump has taken the right course? I think it's the right course to show that America is strong and America needs to be strong. They were weak under Barack Obama, if you will. One thing that my father and I talked about really upset him is when these liberals or these Democrats, and only they do this, would go overseas to a foreign country and look back and point a finger at the United States and blame the United States for every ill known to mankind. My father couldn't put up with that, didn't like it when Jimmy Carter did it, didn't like it when Bill Clinton did it, and I certainly don't like it, and I'm not... I'm sure nobody in your audience likes it either. It's time for Americans to stand up for Americans. If you're liberal, you don't want to stand up for us, move. <laughs> Michael, I couldn't agree more. Our audience certainly does too. Thank you so much for being here.
I want to remind our audience to be sure and watch the videos of Michael Reagan and read his commentaries. You can get them at MichaelEReagan.com. And then after you browse his website, learn how you can honor World War II veterans through the Walkway to Victory Memorial. That's at WalkwayToVictory.com. WalkwayToVictory.com. Also, you can go to ReaganLegacyFoundation.org. Now, Keith hasn't moved from that little spot he's in over there. And that means, because he's still there, that we have more coming up. And Keith is going to tell us about it right now. I would love to. Coming up, more Elvis stories with friends Wink and Sandy Martindale and Trey Corley in the Music City Connection honor the king of rock and roll right here on Huckabee. Well, I just bought some bread on the streets of Jerusalem. One of the things that's always a lot of fun is just to experience some of the local culture. Now here's part of it, this amazing Jerusalem bread. Yep, you buy it right off the street. I know a lot of Americans say, you would eat that stuff? Watch me. But it's not just the bread. You pinch a little piece off, and then you dip it in hyssop. Mmm. It's fantastic. And by the way, if you come with me, maybe I'll buy you some of this wonderful bread and teach you how to dip it in the hyssop and enjoy. Would you like to come with me? Here's how. Go to my website, thegreatesttrip.com. That's thegreatesttrip.com, and it will be. Well, earlier in the show, we enjoyed speaking with the daughter of Elvis Presley, Lisa Marie. Well, as we move into the annual remembrance of the king of rock known as Elvis Week, we thought it might be good to talk to some others who also knew him very well. One was the host of a local TV dance show when he met Elvis. The other was Elvis's girlfriend. But Cupid had a different plan. And the two became husband and wife. They've been blessed with great success in Hollywood. Please welcome the king of game shows and his lovely bride, Wink and Sandy Martindale. So great having you guys. Thank you. It's so good to be here. You know, Wink, I get a, an Elvis squirrel. You get an Elvis squirrel, too. Man, I feel like I'm back in Arkansas <laughs> with an Elvis squirrel. I'll tell you what. That's high cotton for a Razorback boy. Most people know you as this iconic game show host that hosted more game shows than I think anybody but Bill Cullen. Ever. Yeah, I could never hold a job. Uh, yeah, but, but my heavens, what an impact you've had mm. on the entertainment business. But what they don't know is that you were working in radio in Memphis, Tennessee, when a young guy in 1954 recorded an album and a guy named Sam Phillips brought it to your radio station in July of 1954. What happened that night? Well, I was the morning man at that radio station, WHBQ, and uh, I happened to be at the radio station that night. It was a hot July night, 1954, as you mentioned, and I was showing some of my friends from Jackson, Tennessee around the station, and I heard the commotion coming out of this studio where a DJ named Dewey Phillips did a show called Red Hot and Blue. And I excused myself from my group, and I went in there, and Sam Phillips, founder of Sun Records, had walked in with a new record by a truck driver named Elvis Presley. It was called That's All Right Mama. <laughs> That's all right now, Mama. That's all right with me. He put it on, played it once, switchboard lit up. He played it seven times in a row. Mm. And I was designated by Sam to call Gladys and Vernon to see where Elvis was because Dewey wanted him to come down to the radio station. So I called and uh, Mrs. Presley answered the phone and they were listening. They lived in low-rent housing called Lauderdale Courts out in East Memphis, very poor. And uh, she said, Elvis had been so nervous about his record being tested that night on the radio, he went to see a double feature Western at the Suzor's Theater. So they said, we'll go get him and bring him down to the radio station, which they did. And I met him that night and he remained my friend until the day he died. You guys were very close throughout all of the 50s, the 60s and 70s. Yeah. Tell us about Elvis, because we hear, you know, a lot of stories, but you knew him in a way on a personal friendship level. What was he like? He was a giving person. Few people know how many millions of dollars he gave to charitable organizations and to people. He would, he would be driving along the street in Memphis and he'd see somebody with a flat tire. This actually happened. And he pulled over at this particular uh, juncture and uh, he didn't just have the tire fixed, he gave him the money for a new car. 
Wow. He was that kind. How of many people sat around in Memphis with flat tires <laughs> hoping Elvis would drive by? Probably good a lot heavens. after that. Uh, but Sandy, he, was, he was a good person. And Sandy, you have an experience. You dated Elvis for a while. Six years. Six years you dated no, Elvis? He, he dated me, excuse me. <laughs> but I won. I won. I was going to say, I mean, how many people can say Elvis could not hold a candle to me? <laughs> I mean, I think that's pretty extraordinary. My mother came on the first three dates. I was 14 at the time, and my mom said, you know, I was too young to date. But he was at my father's nightclub, saw my picture, and wanted to meet me. So finally, my mom, after three or four times, said, okay, she'd drive me up. It was a school night. I had a little frilly dress, a ponytail. He had a date with a beautiful actress. He held my hand, kissed me on the cheek, and he was very nice looking, and he was a gentleman, and so... He said he wanted to date me, and my mother said, I don't care if you're King Farouk, my daughter's not dating. <laughs> and he said, well, you can come on the dates. So my mother came on the first three dates, and then he promised my mother he'd be a gentleman and take very good care of me, and he, and he dated me for all those years, and he really was. He was just the nicest. He was a wonderful part of my growing up, but we did a thing recently where... Um, we went to see Wayne Newton, and my best girlfriend was Brenda Lee in high school, and so I traveled all over the world with her. So I was not available for dates with Elvis some, a lot of times because we'd be out of town. And we met Wayne Newton in Las Vegas. So we come to L.A., and um, Wayne came and said, would you like to come to my recording session? So I went to see the Duncan Shane recording session, and his PR guy wrote in the column, Sandy Ferris sitting ringside to see Wayne Newton. Well, the next day, Elvis came into town, Who's this Fig Newton person? He was, he was, he was not happy about this. He was very upset with me, and I said, "Well, you know, he's he's just a friend." And so now Wayne does a show in Las Vegas. It's called Up Close and Personal. So he says, "They say, how did you meet Elvis?" And he says, "Well, I was on this plane, and this guy taps me on the shoulder, and I looked up. There's the king of rock and roll." And I said, "Oh, Mr. Presley, I'm such a huge fan of yours." And Elvis said, "Yeah, yeah, kid, I'm a fan of yours too, but I have a question for you. What is it?" do you know a girl named Sandy Farrah? And Wayne says, yeah, as a matter of fact, we're dating. And Elvis said, yeah, well, we're dating too. <laughs> so at his show, though, Wayne is so sweet, and he says, but Sandy was smarter than both of us. She married somebody better than us. She married Wink Martindale. And then he uh, had Wink stand up. What a wonderful, wonderful story. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, my guess is, Wink doesn't mind you telling that story anywhere in the world. No, you know, he doesn't. And, and what I usually say, we do a lot of serious satellite Elvis interviews. And they say, what was it like? Everybody wants to know what it was like to kiss Elvis. And I said, he was the best kisser. And that's basically what our relationship was, kissing for years. <laughs> and, but he was the best kisser, but Wink is the best husband. So God really took good care oh, of me. What a beautiful thing. Wink. Your career, I mean, you've lived 10 lifetimes, all good, but I don't know how you've packed it all in. Well, uh, Governor, I'll tell you, I feel so blessed because from the time I was old enough to know what a radio was, I wanted to be on the radio. I wanted to talk into a microphone and be on the radio. Mm -hmm. And at the age of 17, right out of high school, 25 bucks a week, first job, Jackson, Tennessee, right down the road here, and then went on to Memphis, was there for almost 10 years, and then transferred to Los Angeles, and I've been out there for a lot of years and doing DJ work, and I got into game shows in 1965. I became addicted to a show called Password with Alan Ludden. I'd rush home every day after I got off the air and watch that show, and I did some research, and I discovered that Alan Ludden went in two days a week, knocked out 10 shows, and played <laughs> golf five days a week. <laughs> <laughs> and what I a said, deal. man, that's not a bad way to make a buck. No kidding. <laughs> so I had my agent send me on a couple of interviews, and on the second one, I got my first network game show called What's This Song at NBC, 1966. It's one of the few game shows I might be able to win. And by the way, speaking of, uh, of great songs, you're going to do something for us in a few moments uh, that I think our audience, both in television and here in the studio, is going to love. Uh, it's a recitation very, very powerful one. But before we let you do it, I also want to let our audience in on a little secret. Uh, this past week, you celebrated 43 years of marriage. That's right. And we want to uh, honor you guys with a little anniversary gift. So uh -huh. to Wink and uh -huh. Andy Martindale, happy anniversary to you. Thank you, Governor. What a thrill to have you here with us. Again, you're delightful. And uh, 
my gosh, I, I need three hours to talk to you, and you'll have to come back. And well, we'll we have the start. time. We have the time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> We've got to wrap our interview with Wink and Sandy, but I'm going to tell you something. We'll never scratch the surface of the fascinating facts about this iconic couple. I hope you'll get to know them better at WinkMartindale.com or through their social media. That's also where you can download this new work, I Stand for Everyone. And after you hear it, you're going to want to do it. When we return, Wink is going to be performing that very piece. Now, Keith, I believe we've got another salute to Elvis that's in store as well. You're exactly right. After Wink Martindale's performance, Trey Corley and the Music City Connection celebrate the music of Elvis right here on Huckabee. And welcome back. Now here is the multi-talented Wink Martindale to tell you about his performance. I Stand for Everyone is a patriotic anthem that serves as a corrective lens to see the world, ourselves, humanity, and our place in it just a little bit better. Now more than ever before, it's time to close the divide in our country, to underscore just what we stand for. Every day I hear my father's voice say, the footprints we make are the stands that we take to bring our country together. I am the flag of our country. This truly is who I am. And when you pledge allegiance to me, remember the things for which I stand. I stand in reverence to the power above me. Stand for the underdog whose dream comes true. I stand to honor a great performance. I stand in awe of love in bloom. I stand for that kind of ambition that's a blessing and a curse. I stand for speaking strictly from the heart, for better or worse. But first, first, I stand for those whose time was spent before they could spend their time. I stand for everyone who lost their place in line. Oh, I stand for kissing and a whole lot of hugging. Stand for the would-have-beens, had they held on. I stand for givers who know no limits. Stand in hope when hope is gone. I stand for the things you won't say when you don't want to hurt a friend. I stand for living life as if it will never end. But first, I stand for us who put our trust in the hands of God's design. I stand for everyone who lost their place in line. Oh, I stand for everyone who's felt the turn of the screw. For those who know rejection is just another point of view. I've saved a place in line for everybody still chasing their dreams, or so it seems. I stand for the bold and the daring who spun out on Dead Man's Curve. I stand in lieu of everybody who deserves to be heard. But first, I stand for those whose time was spent before they could spend their time. I stand for everyone. I stand for everyone. I stand for everyone who lost their place in line.
Thank you. Well, my thanks to everyone who joined us tonight on the show, including Wink Martindale. And I hope you'll join us next week for a very special guest, somebody oh, I kind of know fairly well. Next week, we'll have Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who's going to be here in our show. And now to keep the Elvis love going tonight, here's Trey Corley and the Music City Connection to perform their tribute to the king of rock and roll.